Welcome to Eat, Drink, and Do Good, a newsletter and now podcast from Studio Atel. I'm Jenny Dorsey, the studio's executive director. Each month, we feature original social justice op-eds with a focus on the food, beverage, and hospitality industries. In these upcoming episodes, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite pieces from 2021. I hope you enjoy the podcast today, and if you're learning something from these op-eds, please consider supporting us on Patreon at Studio Atau, spelled Studio A-T-A-O. Hi, my name is Edra Kwong, and I'm Studio Atau's Head of Research. Last year, for Pride Weekend, I went out with a couple of friends to Poppy Juice's party at Elsewhere in Bushwick, New York. A roving queer arts and nightlife collective, Poppy Juice aims to affirm and celebrate the lives of queer and trans people of color. It's a space rooted in euphoria and celebration, especially in response to a cultural and media ecosystem that wants either to focus on whiteness or to solicit stories of trauma from marginalized communities. Assembling on the dance floor, for many queer folks, is one means by which they demand and produce a sort of freedom that is fully their own, if only for a moment. And this joyful sense of community served as the future I imagined while writing this piece, titled Moving Beyond Pride and Performativity, about the appropriative corporate performance of LGBTQ support every June. A lot has happened since I wrote this piece last June. In the first three months of 2022 alone, over 325 anti-LGBTQ bills were filed in state legislatures across the U.S., already surpassing the 268 introduced all of last year. The GOP's conservative Christian right has only become further emboldened as more Republican lawmakers seek to appeal to this voter base. The need for action on so many fronts feels ever urgent. And for me, one of the first actions we must take is to peel away the dangerous layers of performance enacted by companies and governments, and for us all to listen to those most impacted and infected by hetero and homonormative state regimes so that we can do the work of building a queer coalition across race, class, and beyond. Hope you enjoy. A note that there are mentions of trans violence in this piece. Moving beyond pride and performativity. On June 16th, 2021, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, tweeted, During hashtag Pride Month, we recognize our LGBTQ plus employees, reflect on the trials that their community has endured, and rejoice with them and the triumphs of those who have bravely fought and continue to fight for full equality, end quote. Unsurprisingly, they were hit with a Twitter storm pointing out the blatant hypocrisy between this message and their past actions. When queer and trans detainees are beaten to death, denied trans-inclusive or any health care, and locked in inhumane conditions, including solitary confinement, it made me wonder, Why does ICE bother to put resources toward a pride message year after year? Part of the answer is in the tweet itself. 
the community they refer to seems limited to the LGBTQ plus employees whose labor ICE already exploits, or the private contractors and corporations who wave rainbow flags to hold on to their LGBTQ plus employees' $987 billion purchasing power. The rejoice does not mean inequitable treatment of queer migrants, but in the bigger prisons and bigger profits they'll gain from reforming prisons to be LGBTQ-friendly and propagandist messaging around trans-friendly facilities. ICE probably doesn't care that their post only received 480 likes, but their insistence in taking a stance during Pride has deeper implications. ICE's message obscures a long, violent history of exclusion and policing toward queer migrants. It is also a governmental extension of Pride's heavy corporatization and rainbow capitalism. That is, the co-opting of LGBTQIA imagery, language, and people by organizations to generate profit or reinforce a progressive public image. When queer bodies are so actively and publicly associated with money, and when corporate money decides who can safely participate in Pride, is elected to office, or can stand at the altar, an empty tweet of support is useless at best, a dangerous distraction at worst. While we can and should celebrate the advancement of LGBTQ plus rights, like the passing of same-sex marriage, the PR-friendly narrative of Pride has sponsored a system where white, wealthy, married, cis couples are prioritized over the needs of the most marginalized queer folks. Queer studies scholar Lisa Dugan defines this as homonormativity, or a politics that does not contest dominant heteronormative assumptions and in institutions, such as marriage, but upholds them while promising the possibility of a privatized, depoliticized gay culture anchored in domesticity and consumption. For example, a few years after 387 corporations argued that same-sex marriage will increase employee productivity, Forbes reported that growing numbers of employers have eliminated domestic partner health coverage and require same-sex couples to be married before an employee's partner can receive health care benefit. While white, wealthy, gay couples, sponsored by corporations, message the right to marry as the final frontier for queer liberation, in practice, this has only further ostracized and harmed the queer folks who do not wish to obey typical conventions of marriage. The lure of homonormativity extends well beyond cute pride slogans. It also seeps into nonprofits who originally set out to advocate for LGBTQ rights. When beholden to corporate donors or structures whose attention is quick to change, most nonprofits default to a framework of deservingness. Who is most worthy of saving, of sympathy? Of redemption or empowerment. Behan Farhadi calls this a reductive rights framework that limits the conversations about public space to bathrooms rather than the broader violence trans people grapple with in all public spaces. In other words, what causes are most palatable to the homonormative systems we've built? As Pride comes to a close this year, I'm abundantly burnt out. From the days of parties, yes, but also from the amount of labor that gets crammed into the one month supposedly meant to celebrate us. A friend sent me a quippy IG story on Monday that said, now that pride is over, I can go back to being ashamed. I think a little bit of shame can be good because in the process of uncovering its sources, we can finally begin the slow process of letting go of our desire for corporate or state acceptance.
in some sense, there's a relief that the month is over. Not because you will stop working for queer liberation, but because we have the option to live without the noise of rainbow logos and critical op-eds and debates about whose pride it is. Instead, we can focus on creating systems of mutual aid in our communities, because that is how we move forward unbeholden to corporate or governmental interests. As Hill Malatino writes in Trans Care, any act of caring is simultaneously an act of maintaining those minimal networks of support that sustain you. Trans collectives and communities are deeply interwoven and interdependent, enmeshed in a way that makes distinguishing between the roles of carer and recipient difficult. They're rotating, interchangeable, and reciprocal. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all prior issues of Eat, Drink, and Do Good on Studio Tao's website at studiotao.org newsletter. I'm Emily Chen, the head of content at the studio. Every month, we'll be releasing a new newsletter and podcast with social justice analyses from new and emerging writers. Make sure to sign up for our mailing list and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to be the first to know on all new episodes. All of our contributors are paid for their time and work, so if you're able, please consider supporting us as a monthly donor via Patreon or via a one-time gift at studiotao.org donate. Thank you for listening.